listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to Season 4 and the 101st episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. On today's podcast, we continue the series called Hop Into Action. I'm joined by Jeffrey Liff, Brent Sutton, Josh Bryant and Diane Archan as a group of Hop and Learning Teams practitioners looking to make sense of putting Hop, Learning Teams and the 4Ds into action for organisations to learn and improve. Think of the series as a mini learning team. We have a theme for each episode and we allow it to evolve or devolve organically. Today we explore some of the frontline insights from the workers with the 4Ds, the notion of curiosity versus criticism and when your faith is challenged and blame fixes nothing. So please sit back and enjoy the series of Hop Into Action sponsored by Safety Differently Merch, providers of curated merchandise befitting your Safety Differently journey. You know what I like about Sutton? Nothing. <laughs> Same as me. We've got, see, we've got similar interests. Yeah. We don't like anything about him. <laughs> I flew all this way for this level of abuse. <laughs> Usually it's over Zoom. <laughs> all right, rock and roll. So, guys, welcome back. And here we go again. And once again, I thought it would be a great experience for us today to share our experiences either in the field or what we've been told by other organizations about our recent 4D experiences as we carry on this journey of learning and improving. And just just for the audience, as we record this, um, uh, Diane is still based in Auckland, New Zealand. Jeff is in Vancouver, British Columbia. And um, uh, Josh Bryant, myself and and Brent Robinson, we're actually in a uh, hotel room in uh, Melbourne where tonight um, we're here for the Australian Institute of Health and Safety Awards, and Josh is a finalist. So we're here today to support Josh in his journey of being recognised. Whether at the end of the day, win or lose, makes no difference because he is a finalist, and that's the big, that's the big part that matters in these types of situations. Look, mutual services just like the opportunity to to share, you know, the hop journey, the four Ds implementation. Um, and our critical risk implementation with the wider industry and just to be recognised as a final where we're quite humbled. So it's, it's awesome. That's super cool. Mm. Well done. Congratulations, Josh. <clears throat> yeah, thanks, man. So guys, what's been happening out in the 4Ds world? One thing we've been doing recently um, with a large uh, construction project was um, they were looking to do something, an improvement on their typical culture survey and 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 their typical yearly conversations around that and so we did a series of uh, 4d discussions and uh and use that information to unpack um a lot of context and was able to process process that into a report i think that um i think is i think is far superior to the the typical metrics the metrics they were used to getting so it's not such a, a not such a little 4D story or nugget, more of a different application. So, um, Diane, from your perspective, putting the 4Ds into a survey 
tool from a psychosocial risk. What do you what do you think the benefit of doing that would be? I think that you know again it comes down to context, right? I mean, uh, a quantitative survey tool, you know, traditionally only kind of it, it it gathers data, and I think we say you know data with soul becomes more important. And the four days again, just because of that richness or a different thinking frame, um, is going to provide a different lens. So you know, it's different. It's it's new. Um, and for me, it helps provide that that soul to that data. The the richness of the data that comes out of that survey, there'd be lots of different methods of analytics, and how we can explore the context of those stories rather than viewing it um, as a scale of, you know, thriving versus harmful, if, if we use that in a psychosocial risk component. Because it might, because it should show the context of why certain groups are thriving, and it also should show why other groups aren't thriving as much. Uh, so I had the opportunity to go out in the field this week. I went to a site that I hadn't been to probably since about January 2023. Um, and I purposely went in to use a 4Ds sort of frame, I guess, in having my conversations. I was only on site for two days, um, but we've got uh, four, five draw rigs there. Um, so lots of new people, people I'd never met before. Um, you know, I don't have an inbuilt trusting relationship with any of these any of these workers, but I was able to just go up to, um, I think the worker's name was Owen. Owen was using one of our, our brand new uh, machines. It's got a big robotic arm. And I, I just talked to him and I, I went in and I said, Oh, how does, how does this task get difficult? Like using this robot? Like, I mean, it's put into, you know, less than manual labor. And he goes, Oh, it's, it, it's actually quite difficult and different. And I was like, Oh, can you talk me through that? And he said, well, you know, although it takes away that manual aspect where, you know, I used to screw in a, a what's called a hall plug into the pipe and pull it out of the ground. It was a very physical work. Um, what I find with the robotic arm is it's actually quite mentally taxing because um, I'm really having to concentrate where this thing is going, where it's working. Um, and that was some, you know, that was some insights that I hadn't actually heard from anyone since we've introduced this new technology. Um, and then the I, I went over and talked to the main operator who was the driller. And I said, oh, how do you, how do you find this, you know, this new technology? Is it really different? He said, look, I came from one machine um, and it, you know, it's, it's quite a methodical way of doing things. And then I've worked underground and it's a totally different way of having to use this machine. But when I've come back up on surface and use this technology, it operates like more of an underground machine. So it's easier for me to use. So something that the business, he said that the business needs to consider is maybe um, whoever they're putting on these new machines with these robotic arms is to make sure that they have an understanding of that underground environment, those underground techniques, and it's going to make them pick up easier. And I just thought, look, you know, as, as a leader, it was my way in. It wasn't transactional. Um, I was there to do critical control verifications as well, but those 4Ds discussions just really unlocked a lot of learning that I was able to pass on to operations. And it also picked up, as you said, where that, that worker was sharing about the the mental taxing element of that. And I doubt that that would have been picked up in a risk assessment or a JSA. No, definitely, definitely not. Um, and it was really something that, 
we thought it was easy to use because like it's almost like an Xbox controller, just a joystick. Um, yeah, but we never thought that, you know, he'd have to, he almost said sometimes he has to lean on sort of one foot so we can see where the robotic arm is. Um, he has to position himself where the driller can see him as well. Um, they were insights I had no idea about, but I wouldn't have got that if I went to that site. And as I said in the in the last episode, um, going in and talking to them about their housekeeping and then discussing the task, but with that mindset that I was there to solve it and find something, um, I wasn't there to find anything. I was there to learn. And the 4Ds actually opened that up. And how do you think the worker felt? from that conversation himself yeah uh, what learning he got rather than what learning you got yeah i think and he was quite proud that he was able to share that with me um because no leader had actually asked uh, it was just a, a different question that he hadn't had before um whereas it it, it was usually uh i don't know cr criticism or um you know commenting on that the site could have been better he was so used to having those conversations with leaders um, but yeah, he, he was really pleased that he was able to share that with me because he knows it'll actually go somewhere. Curiosity versus criticism. <laughs> yes. I really like though, that it was really that mental attribute that came out. That's really cool because you're right. You would never have got that from anything, any other method. Yeah. Like you said, like you said, a, a risk assessment wouldn't have called that out. No, not at all. That's, that's very cool. Um, other ones that I I talked to, I went to another jewelry. Talked to uh, the worker was Travis, and his offsider was Matt, uh, and they were being really careful with what they were doing. They were doing the task quite slowly. They were like adding pipe to the machine, and I was like, "Guys, why does this have to be so difficult? Like, it just seems that you know you you don't feel in a rhythm." And they were like, "Well." With this new technology, um, there's bits of the machine that actually wear faster than others, and it's just part of the design that when the machine is joining onto pipe, um, it has to take almost the weight or the impact of that pipe being added. So he has to be careful with that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that to me says that that would be a consumable part. So surely that's something that you can easily change. He goes, no, that's where things get really difficult because sometimes it's it's a really hard item to um to keep in stock and the lead times are quite long and we have to actually share between the draw rigs. So I was totally unaware, like there was a 16-week lead time for parts and the teams were actually working together to manage the stock that they had on site um, to manage the wear rates on their rigs. And that was just a, a simple 4Ds conversation saying, hey, can you talk me through why that doesn't look right? Well, and Josh, what I like about that is it transcends safety and it really goes to talk about operational issues and efficiency and problems that are facing, that those teams are facing, but they're adapting and working it out for themselves. But again, the business might not know that it's such an issue either with the design of the machine. So Brent, we were able to um, escalate that to the operations GM Yep. Um, because he was actually... He knew about the wear rates, but probably not the the extent um, and not knowing about the consumables as well. So he was actually able to like action that. Yep. And, you know, this is this is me as the GM of safety going out. And, yeah, it, they're operational conversations, they're work conversations, they're work design conversations. And I have such a bigger impact doing that than some sort of checklist or inspection or 
you know, following up my process, I added so much more value to the organization just by uncovering that learning. But I, what I love about it is that it's it's instigated from a safety perspective, but if, having a, and a positive effect on the operation as a whole, it sort of becomes a much more holistic way of um, getting information and learning from everybody in the organization and affecting all the different departments, but without the interceding, oh, you know, you can't tell me that I'm in charge of operations. You know, you've got a really interesting um, dynamic there that's letting people work across those and let that information just flow to a positive effect for the business. Yeah. And I, I think what I was um, picking up on that is that conversation, the worker was able to critically appraise how they were functioning within the system rather than normally how the system is being imposed on them. Yep. So that, so from what I could see from that, that work had moved from that normal assessment or evaluative thing, which is what safety would have done to him, but he was able to see how he was existing within that system and he was able to see the broader issues at play. So to me, that we're starting to see that real critical thinking going on and in that dynamic nature of work that's an amazing skill that's being developed yep really good examples that 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 do blur the lines um of what was conventionally the safety conversation and that whole uh, you know collective performance conversation um and interesting how um robo your your thoughts that that things like that wouldn't be put up, uh, caught on a risk assessment and how people participating in those sorts of conventional safety tools, I mean, are, are bound by them, limited by them and kind of give us back what we want to hear or are limited by the scope of that. Yeah. Um, so these are, you know, better in that way. And great examples too, of how, how people are the problem solvers and people are really the solution and, uh, you know, not, you know, seeing them as a problem to be controlled, but, but really going and, being sensitive to their perspective on the world. Those are great examples, Josh. And you think they would have reported the where right if it had been a traditional mechanism? Yeah, I don't, I, you know, they would have probably discussed it at a pre-shift meeting, something like that. But, you know, that stays local and that yeah. stays at yeah. that group and they don't know if the supervisor escalates it. Whereas just a general, a general manager being curious, um, you know, one of the key hot principles is learning is vital. Yep. And a leader going out there with that mindset, not trying to catch people out, not trying to, you know, check the system. It's actually being quite genuine and trying to learn. Yeah. Context drives behavior. Yep. And and I think if we think about what you're saying, Jeff, is that 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 shifted from being an item on a pre-start to being a learning that went not just local, but that learning went level up. And then that learning is now going to be pushed across the organization as well. So excellent outcome. And I wonder without, without, you know, somebody initiating that conversation that, that the, the, the volume of issues like that, that the guys experience, I wonder if it just feels like whinging and, and uh, you know, to, to bring it up and raise issues, every little rub point when it's not asked for, do you know? Do you think, Josh? You know the guys. That's um, I really like that point. To be honest, yeah, it, I I guess for them it wasn't whinging because it was I was quite genuine in the question I was asking. Why is this difficult? Talk me through it. 
But I think what it does, the four Ds are doing here, is letting it move through the organization unimpeded. Because I can imagine that, you know, on, in a construction scenario, you're having that restart and they're going, oh, you know, this thing's always wearing out. And they go, oh, yeah, no, nah, it's the crap they always buy. It's always wearing out, right? And that's where it stops, where what this has done is let it transcend that and it's now moving up and 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 percolating up to the top. And they're going, well, how often do they wear out? Oh, really? We're waiting 16, you know, all those little bits of information that would typically stop much further down the chain and are now percolating to the top to go, well, you know, we can actually fix this and make it better. And that's that's what we're seeing with the 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 4Ds and, you know, in the, the construction space, I see it all the time where they're just little things like we've sent the wrong nuts and typically we wouldn't fix that, right? We wouldn't even know about it. They'll just go to the local store and get new fasteners. But what we've found is it went all the way back to our 3D models that had the wrong information on it. We've been sending the wrong nuts to sites around the world continually now for about six months, you know, and it just automatically happens because people get to get to site and don't do anything about it. But with the 4Ds, we actually found out about it. You go, what are we doing? That's just crazy. Um, and I love that because it, it doesn't become whinging anymore. It becomes, oh, wow, really? Oh, okay. Well, we yeah. can, that's such a simple fix. I love how, um, Josh, you, you you brought up that, you know, the learning is vital, um, hot principle. And, you know, these are different conversations, which allows that pause and reflect and that learning time. So it takes those almost throwaway comments that people wouldn't have paid attention to before and gone, let's pause and reflect on that. You know, a lot of the times with the 4D conversations, um, because it's a group, People tend to go, in my experience, people tend to have gone, yes, we can't, we knew that. Um, but it was a bit like an elephant and it didn't, you know, we we didn't know what to do with that information or how to have a deeper conversation. Whereas with the four days, I think it, it allows that learning space to happen in a, a context which is different from the usual way we've approached things. So that learning is vital, establishing operational excellence is, is and, and oh, sorry, operational learning is is really key, I think. Um, you know, you touched on that as well, Brent, where you said, you know, it's not just about safety. And, you know, one of the outputs or learnings from the Maritime Project that we reflected on was it's a, it's a great way to understand capacity um, on an everyday level, not just from safety, but from quality and from performance as well. And that also helps with people understanding that change from safety as absence of incidents and injuries to safety as a capacity or just any capacity. Yeah. I love, love that, Diane. The better feedback loops, right? With a, mm. with a, with a smidgen of curiosity and a little bit of a thinking frame. Um, you know, leaders can go out and, and, and establish much, much better operational feedback loops. And, and that's so important these days because we know that the data that they've been getting has just led them to, you know, make decisions that are either unaware of or, or reduce capacity, right? So, so the way that these conversations help a leader enhance performance capacity is uh, quite mind-blowing. Yeah. Mm. And when you said that, like a leader was unaware of, and I think that's key for me. They're just people are unaware of it, 
And, you know, we always say, look for the weak signals and the elusive obvious. And this is that ability to pause and think differently, to question, well, I didn't know that. And what is the unintended consequence or what are the consequences or what's happening? How have things come together strangely and in unforeseen ways? It was good. I got a challenge this morning from a gentleman, Pat Wigley, and he he said, look, the 4D seem to, you know, reveal all these rubs, all these operational issues, but it all seems to be the, the negative, like, you know, this isn't working, this is a rub. Um, I think the example I've given uh, where, you know, the, the driller said to me, look, if people work on the underground drill rigs first and then move to this new rig, they actually pick it up quicker. That to me is a positive. That's something I can proactively work on. That's not fixing anything. That's me actually building capacity in the organization because I can go, oh, people will actually learn this machine quicker by doing this first. Um, we had no idea about that. I don't, I don't see that it being it being negative as a problem. I think it being negative lets you understand what those people at the front line are having to deal with. And if they see that the organization is taking that on board, then it goes to those results that you're getting that this is a good place to work. And I, so I think that I, you know, I, I heard what Pat said and I sort of get what he's saying, but you know, in this, in this current context of employment where it's really hard to find and retain people, if they feel that they're engaged and participating in the improvement of that's the business, God, that's gotta be, a, that's such a cool thing to have happen in your organization. Right. And, that it's come from a you know this is a problem or that's a problem that's fine at least you know how many people would you go i left the organization because i kept telling them about this thing and they never fixed it and i just got so frustrated and left much cooler to them to come to you and, and then they close the loop the business closes the loop or the organization closes the loop what a great organization to work for and that's what you guys are experiencing right yep. i um Anything? reflect with me that the uh uh, basically, the the post employee interview when the employee's leaving, he, he was sharing with me. That's when they've been finding out about these weak signals, and he's saying to me, "It's too late. Yep. Why why are we letting him get to this point?" And and he initially started in that context. Why couldn't they have told me earlier? And and it sort of leads me back, Josh, that if you had have asked that worker, "What goes well? What doesn't go well with your job?" That that would have that person would have had to have, you know, um, he was focused on judgment ra rather than curiosity, which is what we're really trying to explore. And when I talked to CEO about that, he goes, "You're right. We've got this the wrong way round. We should be having the courage to have these conversations, understand that these things that people are sharing with us." Rubs or frictions, wherever they are, those are the things that people are valuing at the moment. Because the great resignation debate is exactly that. You know, it's easy to move on and find another role. The more time I spend on this, the more I think that these sorts of discussions are a critical step because they they give they give people an experience with a, a humble form of inquiry and and they give people a a lived experience with sort of practicing some of the principles and understanding what building capacity means. So those those ideas are not 
massive anymore once they've had this experience. And then it segues beautifully into what Eric has always wanted us to do in the safety two spaces is, is to, you know, build a compendium of, of, of why work goes well. I think that we have to move towards going out and, and socializing a conversation around, um, you know, on reflection of, of what was it, where did, where, what was an advantage? What was an advantage in our work today? What did we capitalize on? Uh, what, what accelerated us? Um, what did we learn that we need to be aware of? Uh, and, and where did we adapt? Where did we successfully adapt and, and bring it in? I think with a conversation, well, those are A words, right? Not D words, but I think a conversation around those A words is really going to move us towards, uh, uh, what Eric really had in mind for the safety two space, which is pay pay this exactly this kind of attention to our operation and 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 those folks that really know the work and and communicate them with them this way. Um, but specifically, I think he would prefer we had a conversation about why it went well and what needs to be enhanced, not not resolved or improved. I, I'd say me challenge that, um, and maybe you can chip in there, Diane, about. The things that we've been learning, particularly around psychosocial risks, about how the 4D is allowing us to see those conditions that allow us to actually create change in work design. Because the work design then creates the environment for success. So, yeah, so we, we've been working with one particular company looking more at psychosocial risk factors. And we've used 4Ds plus um, a more appreciative inquiry approach around what does a good day look like and understanding the protective factors that are powerful and that people really um, see as valuable and, you know, what's important to them and what they cannot lose um, in their work. And so, you know, you can see where potentially you've got some of those rubs, but also how those elements of the protective factors and the, and, and the things that really get them through um, can't be lost. So when you're thinking around, you know, as a CEO or a leadership team, how can you influence um, where is your locus of control? How can you play to those strengths, understanding, you know, some of those rubs can't be removed. They are what they are, but those strengths can can be um, fortified, essentially. Um, so yeah, I, there there's. I think again, it's it's how you can adapt the tools to take some of that thinking and where that organisation is at with their thinking, as well. Um, again, I think we're only on the very start of the journey and, and the four days is one tool. So, you know, looking at where you can apply that um, in, in a different context and setting where you are with the different principles, the conversations you have, um, you know, you can, you can absolutely start introducing other appreciative inquiry and, you know, looking at what goes right and how you can help um, make things go right. But you're right, Jeff, I think, where we're at at the moment, it's easier from a transition perspective to be in this space to create, for me, the awareness of what's happening when nothing's happening and the ability to lean into the everyday work because it is so easy to kind of go, well, what should we be looking at? And perhaps if you haven't uh, ever demonstrated anything else, 
you know, if you come out and seek to have a, a, a progressive form of inquiry, they're going to just look at you like, like they can't trust you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the challenging, let's not look at the, the deficit approach. Let's look at the positives. It's, it doesn't come naturally, unfortunately. And, you know, um, I think in the session that we ran this morning, I said, well, sometimes, you know, the, the, the learning teams and especially everyday mode of a learning team um, can help you see some of the psychosocial influences or, or factors that, that says your work isn't so optimal or actually it's so amazing. Um, and if we can tap more into that amazing space, then I think that's easier actually than trying to solve all of the not so amazing things. The dynamic of any profit-driven organization is to improve, right? So people are going to really struggle when you say to them, learn what's going well every day. Well, we just know we want to keep on improving. So let's find the things that are going, we can improve. Because if it's going well every day, we can't improve it. Therefore, we don't have operational excellence, you know. And so because it is that that iterative process of getting better and better, you know. So I think that's where the, you know, we're going to have to do some more exploration around that to try and understand what that actually looks like. Because at the moment, it's holy grail, really, isn't it, in some respects? So I had another good challenge this week where my hot beliefs were challenged. So that was pretty cool. Um, there's one quote that has always stuck with me. Uh, it's from Andrea Barker. And it was, human and organizational performance is not the absence of rules or discipline. It's the notion that if you depend on a person doing something 100% right, 100% of the time, a lot, that you will be disappointed. So I've got one to share in that uh, we found a machine uh, didn't have a guard in place. And the guard protects a worker from some foot clamps where they could have a crush injury. And, and we actually had a, a severe crush injury to a gentleman called Sebastian uh, in October in 2022. So, you know, we're quite, I guess, our spider senses tingle every time we hear the word guard. But before we left in and, you know, said, what are these people doing without this guard? We actually applied the four Ds to it. And we're like, well, does this guard actually make work more difficult? Is it difficult for us to use this guard? And then we asked the question, well, is this piece of equipment different to the other bits of equipment that require the same guard? So we're asking that different question. Um, do, does it make work more difficult or dangerous by putting it there? Do you have to do things a different way? Um, and we basically went through these looking at this control, like really we've got a performance standard for this control. We do critical risk verifications on it, but really stepping back and applying the four Ds to the control itself. Uh, and at the end of the day, it ticked all the boxes and it should have been in place. And it was the choice of the individual not to put that guard in place. But the organization then took another step back and said, well, how come they can move the guard? So the CEO, first question, how come they even have the choice to move that guard? Why does it need to be moved? Why can't we just weld it in place? Why can't we bolt it in place? Why can't we secure it in place so that only maintenance have a special key that could undo it? Um, why don't we have an interlock that, you know, when that guard's not in place that the machine doesn't work? 
So we didn't just stop at the individual action. We actually stepped back as an organization and started to ask those deeper questions. We had another one also where we have laser barricades to protect areas of our equipment so that if anyone walks through, the equipment will actually shut down. And we found that one of these lasers had been bypassed. So a laser works on shooting a beam that's got a reflector and the reflector shoots back and that closes your circuit. And what we found is that a reflector had been taped directly in front of the laser and therefore the laser was bypassed. So the machine could still be operated, but you know the, ba- the laser was basically pointing at itself a couple of centimetres and it was sticky taped in place. So rather than initially jumping up and down and blaming the worker, we needed to understand, well, why did they need to do that? How were they able to do that? So is that reflector easy to move? And what we actually found is they... They were able to access a spare reflector um, and put that in place in the laser and tape it there. And we were like, what? What, Why are there spare reflectors around? Oh, because the reflectors actually get damaged all the time because of where they're placed on the operating equipment um, and they break. So we need a spare so that we can replace them easily. So we looked at making that control better and was the laser more less effective than maybe a hard guard um, with an interlock, which is what we did replace it with. Um, but my point of my story was that we didn't just go, hey, this person's bypassed a safety system. We queried the safety system. Does it make sense for the worker to use this? You know, I can I can go, look, has the person made an error? Error is normal. Blame's not going to fix anything. But the thing is, that laser and those reflectors aren't only on that piece of equipment. They're on all our equipment. So this is something that the organisation can change everywhere. I think what you're saying, if that had been what I'd call an atypical, that once they'd blame the worker, they would then have removed all those spare reflectors off the site. Rather than asking the question, is that level of safeguard enough? Yes. So I think once again, you know, shoot off to you because you actually asked that question. So so here we have, we're holding a worker to um, to account and being responsible for their actions, that's fine. That's, that's nothing wrong with doing that. But more importantly, you've also found the weakness in the system because ultimately, if I think about it, that error trap was waiting to happen. Yep. It's waiting to happen. Because obviously, he was able to be more effective and efficient by doing the way that he did it. Yeah. And look, we we work with many, many clients, but what I really liked in this case is that the client actually asked deeper questions and said, well, why did the person feel that they needed to do this? Um, were they working alone? Um, were, did anyone else see them bypass this system? Is this work as normal? Where we imagine that these reflectors are just in place and the laser barricades are in place everywhere you know, what drove his need to do that or that worker's need to to bypass the system? What were the conditions that led to him needing to bypass it? So for me, looking at it, looking at those two examples, um, we talk in the book also about critical steps and, and critical controls. So the critical control being it'll actually prevent a fatal risk or mitigate the consequences, whereas a, a critical step is a human action. Um, so we find with the guard, that's a critical control, right? But the critical step is that to put that in place so what are we doing to verify that that's that's the way it is 
So, um, yeah, the organisation's looking at that and going, well, it's not actually that guard isn't a critical control if it can be moved. So we need to find a better way um, to, to implement that control and, and remove that hazard. Yeah. I think in the book we explore the difference between a hard control and a soft control. So so the guard, the, the guard with the interlock would have been a hard control because it would not have allowed human error yep. to have overcome its level of protection. But because it was effectively a laser or a light curtain device that is relying on the, the human component. So when we talk about soft control, we're saying that it allowed that workers imagine workers done allowed that blue line to, to move down towards the hazard. Yep. Oh, I, yeah, I, I like how you guys talked about it before. You talk about it's a critical control or a critical step. And so once the human has to interact with it or make a decision, it's a critical step. I wanted to jump in with that and say, Josh, I, we love the Mitchell stories. Um, and I think, I mean, your efforts, of course, but I think I think the wonderful thing about the Mitchell stories is the Mitchell people. And and every story I've heard has this human element from the field. Boy, do you ever hire humans, such human humans. You probably hire the humanist humans in all the drilling <laughs> industry. But, um, you know, you know, going back to how you started that conversation, Josh, you know, we know that um, workers are going to be the problem solvers. We, they just are. And, and they're not going to be the whingers, you know, if they're not really humbly asked for their perspective, they're going to soldier on and, and they're going to be the problem solvers. But we don't want them solving the problems that we create with sloppy, messy controls, you know, and, yes. and that's really a story of that is uh, using some kind of Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise kind of mirror laser play to uh, to, <laughs> to get his work done, as opposed to being able to say this is, you know, stupid. So so that's really what we're what we're moving towards. And I think it's a great story. Your stories are always top notch. Yeah, there was a challenge from uh, Christian Young recently at a, at a large mining conference in australia there was like 1200 people in attendance and he just said there's not enough sharing of stories or lessons learned so you know i know that my boss andrew will doesn't mind me sharing these stories because it this is happening everywhere right and if we're you know a, a finalist for a national award for safety yet we've still got this stuff going on every single day um we had another one recently where one of our workers was exposed to a fall from height um, so they were basically climbing up on a drill rig and then they were exposed to a, a falling from height risk. And rather than going, oh, what a bad person climbing up there and being exposed at working height, we asked that question. Why did he have to climb up there? What allowed them to climb up there? Uh, what was the task they were trying to do? And what we actually found is that some hoses had been tangled up in the mast of the drill rig. And we were like, okay, well, why why'd that happen? And what we found is that we'd removed a part of the equipment on the drill rig, but uh, part of the process of removing that allowed, like they leave some hoses in place and they bundled it up and so that it's out of the way. And what happened is that is that group of hoses became unbundled. And so other hoses on the drill rigs wrapped in that. So that created a working at heights task. 
that didn't exist, wasn't planned for, isn't in the risk assessment because we didn't know it would happen. But the person got exposed to that risk. So the initial focus was on, oh, that person's exposed to a working at heights risk. What a bad person. To 